Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband, our Daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot Daf Samach Vav, page 66. We are going to start on the previous Daf because we're opening a new pack and we've got the Mishnah there and so on. I want to give a, just a little bit of an introduction to the chapter ahead, knowing, recognizing that there's plenty of, you know, digression and interruption within the content that we know is upcoming. Um, here we've got a large focus on the dowry the dowry meaning that which a woman brings with her into the marriage and you know what is she expected to bring from her father's home what happens to it who owns it once it comes into the marriage what would happen in the end of the the marriage you know ending um and what responsibility even does the husband then have for the dowry once it's brought in um okay these are this is you know I, I wish I could like tie up every parak of Ketubot with a nice bow. Oh, here's the introduction and here's the topic. And I find that these dapim in general are more wide ranging than that. And so that from once we're talking about dowries, we're going to end up talking about, you know, different kinds of properties and different kinds of, you know, what happens when you've got liquid assets and business um, evaluation and so on. So there's a lot that's going to, it's upcoming in our new parak. Um, and of course, you know, one real question, which is maybe asked eventually, but not front and center, is of course what the woman's, um, the woman who's going into marriage with this dowry, what is her relationship to the dowry, right? We first talk about the father's responsibility and the husband's responsibility and and who owns what when. And I, I'm a little bit curious, you know, how the women themselves would have related to the fact that they're coming in with this dowry and, and what does that speak to, right? Um, Certainly, we know that the because of the economic uh, what the economic dynamic within a marriage, you know how much the woman brings as a dowry was actually a relevant, important question. Um, and I would say that in modernity, in my world, I think people don't so much think about what is what what are you bringing in as a dowry, right? But I feel like in Perhaps in the Haredi ultra-Orthodox world or the Hasidic world, that's still really, I think, quite part of, of how people are functioning. Yodana, do you have anything to add before I jump into the Mishnah? No, I think you can uh, go ahead. Go ahead to the Mishnah. Let's okay, so this, <laughs> for those who are following along inside, I'm still on page 65, right? Meaning this is the end of the previous staff. Matnitin mitziata isha umaseya dela va'ala v'yurshata so this is actually the equation that we've been referring to for a long time now in terms of what the wife provides within the marriage and what the husband provides. Namely, if the wife finds a lost object or plus her earnings, we've talked about that in terms of masiyadeh, plus any inheritance that she might get, all of that um is accrued to the husband, at least the profits of those things are accrued to the husband during her lifetime, in her lifetime. But if she were then in need because um, she's injured or she's embarrassed, she's humiliated, whatever, and then the question is, you know, who's going to pay compensation for the fact that she has been injured or, or degraded, humiliated, etc.? What happens to, to that money? That money, shallah, that money would go to her, not to the husband. So that's an interesting caveat, I think. Rabbi Huda ben 
בזמן שבגלוי לא שני חלקים ולא אחד. אז רבי יהודה בן בטר has a caveat on this claim, or uh, uh, really more than a caveat, right? He really v- revises the Mishnah's claim that any money that would come to her as a matter of damages or, or again, what? Um, what do you call it? What's the, what's the bush, um, bullshit in English? Yodina, why am I blanking on this? Right, this, I, this idea that somebody who's humiliated can get, have... What is yeah, it? it's humiliation, like dick, right. Humiliation is its own category, fine. Um, so, right, the Rabbi Huda ben Patera says that if the injury were in a concealed part of her body, meaning that it's baseter, meaning nobody can tell that she has been injured, then she receives two parts, two-thirds of the payment, and the husband receives one part, one-third. But if it were an, an exposed part of her body, you know, that it was visible, then the husband would receive two portions, meaning two-thirds, because he's got some measure And this is going to distress everybody, I'm sure, um, and I think rightfully so, that he has some measure of public humiliation because of her injury that is visible in a public way, and then she receives only one part. And of course, the Gemara goes, or the Mishnah rather goes on to say, His payment it comes to him immediately, meaning presumably in a form of uh, movable property, Um, and her portion is going to be land, you know, will come to her as land, which has been purchased with the amount, the value that she was owed. And then he, the husband, will get the payrot, any of the benefits, the profits of that land that they would then accrue. So the land is owned by her, but he gets the profits of it. Um, on the one hand, this is a very, you know, kind of sterile equation kind of thing. And on the other hand, I feel like it really kind of, I don't know, I feel like everybody's hackles are, rise, are rising because, because this is really, um, you want to talk about pain and suffering and humiliation and degradation. I feel like there's some of that going on in the mission itself in that the, in that the compensation for that experience it does not simply go straight to her as the Tanakama said. The Tanakama, I think, is much more pleasing to everybody. Um, it's economics. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, this is just straightforward economics. It's economics. But the fact that her injury, if it's visible, is as if it's an insult to him. So he gets the compensation because he has been degraded by her injury. I feel like maybe she is more degraded by her visible injury than he is. Yeah, I understand what you're saying about that. But I think, you know, the other way to look at that is, is that like, It's, you know, it, it's, it, she's really, part, men, women are part of the household or like under their spouse in a way that we don't think of marriage today. So right. when you do something to somebody's, you know, wife in that way, it's an affront to them. Uh, which like, is, certainly yes. Can we look yes. at it in a chivalrous way? No. <laughs> I don't think it's chivalry. I think it's a matter of, you know, you marry your wife because, and now you have this pretty shiny, you know, beautiful I'm not going to say object, right, in your household. And if your pretty, shiny, beautiful, not object is damaged, then that's a poor reflection on you. Yeah. That's I'm sorry. Really look at it. <laughs> All right, go on. Meaning, I, I, think that the, I think that there's something perhaps true about that, but that doesn't mean I'm going to like it. And I also think that it's a kind of societal ill that we don't want to be true, so let's fight against it, you know. Okay, yeah. in any case. 
I want to read the little bit of the Gemara on exactly this portion. So I'm jumping within the Gemara. I'm now on Samach Vav, and I'm jumping to the part where it says Bushta Ufkama, meaning where it comes to her humiliation, her degradation, that it comes it would be paid to her. But Rabbi Huda ben Batera says that he actually gets that the husband actually gets part of that compensation. The Gemara here says Matifla Rava Bar Rav Hanan. So Rava Bar Hanan objects to this. What does he object to? Rav Hanan says, you know, according to Rabbi Huda ben Batera, then we should have an equation that if somebody humiliates another person's horse, then the halacha should be that the offender, right, the person who has done this humiliation of the horse should have to pay for the horse's humiliation to the owner. And that's not the halacha. I mean, there's no such thing halachically as a humiliation of a horse. There's damage to a horse. And that would require payment, but but not humiliation as uh, something that requires compensation. And the Gemara indeed asked this, right? Vasus Barboshid, who, who is a source really, is a horse really going to be humiliated? So you don't like the horse example? The Gemara says, fine. Think about it this way. According to Rabbi Yudah ben Batera, if one person spits on, other, on another person's clothing, that's humiliating, right? So then does a person have to, you know, give him payment for that boshet, for that humiliation at that point? Meaning, how much are you going to divide out this kind of payment? So the Gemara says, mm-hmm. You want to say that, in fact, he should be, he should have to pay for that spitting. Meaning, we have a Gemara in Babakama, which is really where, you know, there's a great, tremendous discussion about damages, where if a person spits on another person, and in fact the saliva reaches the other person, or, and here's a really interesting set of examples, right, of other kinds of potential humiliation. He covers a woman's head from her from her kisui rosh, from her marriage head covering, or he takes a garment off of a person. Or, you know, is that in that, in that case, according to that Mishnah in Babakama, the person who has done this kind of degradation is obligated to pay 400 dinar because this is extreme bullshit. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line. In which case you're not, you're not fussing around with determining, Oh, two thirds to this person and one third to that person. The person is humiliated, gets 400 and, and 400 zoos and done. The Amar of Papa, lo shano elabo aval bivigdo pator. So if Papa says, well, yes, all of those examples are true, right? The 400 dinar, but that's when the spit reaches the person, the body, somebody's skin. But if the if the spit reached his garment only, at that point we would say that the person who, who does the spitting is exempt from pain. Bevigdo patur, bevigdo leit ziluta, ishto it ziluta. So the comparison to the garment, you know, kind of doesn't go far enough, right? Because the verse is like, yeah, you spit on someone's garment. There's no, there's no lack of respect. There's no, there's no bizayon. There's no disparagement in that experience. But if your wife is humiliated, she is dishonored, and then that is a dishonor or degradation of the of her husband. Amar le Ravino Ravashi elamiata biyesh ani ben tovim. Servina says to Ravashi, okay, fine, that might be the case. The husband would be um, embarrassed or humiliated on behalf of his wife, but if one is humiliated 
um, if if a person humiliates a poor person, a poor person who is ben tovim, somebody who comes from good stock, a good family, a noble family, perhaps, right? Then doesn't that bring dishonor to the whole family? But So maybe we should worry about a payment, right, for everybody in the family. I'm meaning, and that's not the halacha. You don't worry about a payment for everybody in the family. So again, they resolve it, so to speak, by saying that when a relative is humiliated, it doesn't mean that each person is literally humiliated, but because we say we have this um, you know, correspondence between a husband and a wife, then when the wife is humiliated, that is inherently humiliation for the husband. And by the way, that, Yardena, is the saving grace, right? The the silver lining, you want to find the chivalry, that it's not just her her as a possession, it's the idea that they are just one, so that if she is humiliated, the humiliation is his as well. Not so bad. Um, so you feel like the Gemara redeems the initial reading of the Mishnah? I think the Gemara does. I don't think that the initial reading, I, I don't think the Mishnah says it that way. I think the Mishnah makes it sound like property, you know, um, right. that she is an embarrassment. Her shame is his shame. His because embarrassment. The Gemara tries to soften it a bit. I think so. I think that because it, it, it sets it up literally in this way of, you know, the, the phrasing of she is humiliated, so therefore he's humiliated. Not she's made ugly, so therefore he's humiliated. Right. But I also want to say, I think this is language and words that just don't translate well into English. Like, like they probably had different connotations or meetings or subtleties to them that are lost through time and through language. But, okay. I'm going to move yeah. on to two, to two other missions that are here. Um, all right. So one has a very short Gemara on It's at the bottom of Amar Aleph. Right. So let's say somebody gave money for his son-in-law, like as part of a dowry, and the son-in-law dies before before receiving the money. Right? Would the terms would that dowry go to the yavam of the widow? And the Chachamim say, the father-in-law can say to the Yavam, I wanted to give the money to your brother, but to you, I don't want to give it to. Pascal Achnislo Elif Dinar, right? Then that goes on to say that if a woman had said that she would bring into the marriage 1,000 uh, dinar, you know, as, like basically as cash for a dowry, right? He then can pledge in the marriage contract that, you know, in the Ketubah, that he'll give uh, 1,500 uh, dinars against them. Okay, so in other words, he basically writes a Ketubah that in the, you know, event of divorce or death, he'll pay her an even greater amount, okay? And then it also says that against the appraisal of goods, such as like utensils or other, you know, the movable property that they always talk about, he can pledge one-fifth less than what was evaluated, okay? Because generally, those metaltaline, the movable property, right, is usually assessed as being at a higher value than what it actually is, and he can't really earn money from any of that. 
if an appraisal is set for 100 dinars and the property is actually worth 100 dinars, right? Ain lo elamana. Then he can only claim property that's worth 100 dinars. Shumbamana, right? He no nenach lo shim v'achad sela dinar. Okay. Um, if he uh, if he gets that appraisal of the metaltine of the movable property that she brings into the marriage, and it's one hundred dinar, only she's giving him thirty one sela and one dinar, which actually equals to one hundred and twenty five dinars. Okay, um, and so the reason is because the actual value is a fifth less than what the like sort of like what we're saying is is that it was inflated, the appraisal was actually inflated, right? Um, right? Or let's say he pledges 400 dinar against her, you know, what she's bringing in, and she's actually giving 500. But again, this is like an inflated assessment, and the real value is 400, right? Basically, the son in law has to pledge, the husband has to pledge according to the amount that she brings in. And he pledges one fifth less. So we don't like, so he would pledge a fifth, fifth less of what the actual uh, value of the property is. Okay. So it, this is really just a lot of economics and math. And again, I think part of what's being stressed in this parak is sort of the real nitty gritty granular part of like what the economics of a marriage were. What do people bring in? How do you sort of arrange, you know, the point of this mission is basically arranging, like, she brings an X amount, the ketubah needs to reflect that value of what she's bringing in. So yes, we've talked before about sort of this baseline 200 dinar, but if somebody uh, is going to bring in a lot more property, you know, then that ketubah basically needs to, uh, needs to basically, uh, you know, reflect that. Um, and, and the Gemara, you know, basically it's a very, very short Gemara. The Gemara makes a comment sort of why would the father refuse to give, you know, the dowry to the Avam, right? And it basically says, because it could, you know, uh, you know, you could do this if like the first son-in-law was a Torah scholar, was a Tamil Chacham, and the second one was an Am Haaretz. But if both were, uh, but if the first one was an Am Haaretz and the second one was a, was a Torah scholar, Right. Even there, uh, he could the father could say this because it's just he's allowed to have specifics to an actual uh, individual, which I thought was interesting. Okay, then we have a second Mishnah, which is on the top of Amadvet. Let's say she pledges to bring him money. Right. And not actual like property or, you know, items, but she's just going to bring money. Right. Her Sela, which is equal to four dinars becomes six dinars with 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 what his obligation is in the ketubah, okay? So so what they're basically, so now they're going to give like a general rule. Right? The groom basically increases his obligation by one half because he's going to profit more from money than he will from like her bringing an item, right? Which makes sense. Like if she brings cash, that is a different value. He can buy things. He can invest things than if she brings pots, right? Or something to the marriage. So the groom basically accepts upon himself to give 10 dinars to the account for her needs, right? For each and every 100 dinars that she brings. So he needs to sort of give 
a certain amount that's pledged to her for every 100 dinars that she brings. says everything is really according to the custom. So in other words, he's recognizing that this may vary from region, uh, you know, from region uh, to region. So the Gemara is going to get into a discussion that this Mishnah seems to be similar to something else that was said in the previous Mishnah and sort of trying to explain what the two different, uh, uh, what the two different, um, Mishnas are. It's, it's really, to me, the whole Gemara here is sort of solving a very big, uh, you know, uh, uh, math, uh, a math problem. Um, uh, but, you know, but what they do do in the second half of the stop is, is they start to give stories, sort of negotiations uh, that actually uh, uh, took place. So uh, we don't really have time to go through all of them. But I think it's very interesting that there's a little bit less, I think, of like parsing out the specific halachot, and they move to stories very quickly. Well, that's not true. That is very true. I wonder you why. Know? Meaning you would think there's enough there's enough math to keep us busy with actual, you know, nitty-gritty halacha. It's interesting that they shift to the stories. Um, I think because some of this was not fully set, like this is rabbinic law. So it's not like you're reading psukim. It's not like you're talking about fulfilling a mitzvah. So in a way, you just turn to like, practically, how did this play out? How did other rabbis organize their kids who vote for their children? Or how did other rabbis, you know, uh, give a psak? Or when somebody asked them a question about this, what did they rule? I, I, that's what I think it's about. I think that's accurate. I also think it's interesting that, you know, it means that, look, they, these are the sages, right? They have greater independence of, you know, figuring things out than people nowadays when we talk about, you know, the binding nature of halacha or, you know, when people turn to their rabbinic authorities to ask what to do. Some of these rabbinic authorities back in the day, the sages didn't have somebody to ask, right? They kind of just needed to figure it out. And then everybody says, well, based on what he did, that's how we get what we do now. Right. Now, I just want to add, there's another very famous story at the end of this stuff, uh, which I probably also could have read. It goes on to the next stuff. Uh, but I think this story, anybody can read on his own, and it's, and it's about Noctinon. So first of all, just put this in um, contrast to the story we just had about Rabbi Akiva, right, who married, you know, Ben Calvas uh, Savua, who was, you know, supposed to be one of the wealthiest men. And here we have a story where Rabbi Yochanan is riding on a horse and he comes across this young woman who's basically looking for food in the manure of animals. And he finds out that basically she's Naktimon Ben Gurion and she, he had signed her ketubah. And that's sort of why the story uh, becomes uh, becomes relevant here. Um, the thing to know about Naktinon is, you know, he comes up, he had donated those golden gates, you know, to the Beit HaMikdash, um, uh, you know, Shar Naktinon, excuse me, that's what it's called. And um, he was really one of the patrons of uh, of Yerushalayim. Um, and that essentially what you see in the story is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who remembers who gives Yerushalayim up essentially to save the Jewish people. Um, he sees the daughter of one of the wealthiest, most important people of Yerushalayim, basically so poor, right? 
that what does she have to do? That she basically has to look for food in the manure of uh, in the manure of animals. Um, but this story also, uh, you know, uh, gets tied into. Um, uh, you know, he basically says at the end, Rabbi Yochanan, uh, that, you know, how could you not be moved? Uh, how could you not be moved by this story, right? Like he, he, he's so taken, uh, by this story. Um, and, and, and you see like his real sorrow sort of, and his, and, and how unhappy he is, uh, sort of, uh, come through on this page. And then the Gemara sort of goes on to explain uh, how much tzedakah Naktimon uh, actually uh, would give, right? And that he was so rich that when he would walk from his house to the Beit Midrash, they would put clothes beneath his feet and the poor would follow him and then they could basically, uh, you know, take that. But but it's not clear if it's saying that sort of he did that actually for his uh, for his honor, what type of comments are they making about him? So, uh, you know, again, I just, just, it's a very, very famous story. He's a very famous person, uh, who's in the Gemara itself. And this is sort of the key story about him. This Gemara in Ketubos with his daughter and this interaction that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai has, that he signs her Ketubah and then he sees her like this. And I think it's no accident that it appears in Masachet Kitubot, but we're also going to have a lot of discussion about Sadaka, and there's also a comment about Naktimon Sadaka as well. That's our discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm-hmm.